Those passages that we read will be our, our reading this morning, and today, on this Christmas Day, we are going to look at the birth of Jesus and at the story of the birth of Christ. The story of the birth of Christ, of course, is found, for the most part, in Luke chapters 1 and 2, which we just read a portion of. From those two chapters, we learn of the, Gabriel, of the angel Gabriel coming to a young Jewish girl named Mary and telling her that she is going to bear a child, a child unlike any other child ever born to any mother, a child who would be, the text says, the Son of God Most High, and that this would be accomplished through the, the working of the Holy Spirit. We learn from these stories of the decree that everyone had to go to their own town in order to be counted in, in the census, and of Joseph and his fiancée, Mary, and their journey to Bethlehem. We learn of her giving birth to her firstborn son and laying him in a manger. We learn of the nearby shepherds who were in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night and of the appearance of an angel and of the glory of the Lord announcing the birth of the Son of God. That announcement, that good news of great joy, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In Matthew's Gospel, we hear much the same story. Of course, Matthew fills in some additional details uh, that Luke doesn't include in his primarily of the angel appearing to Joseph and explaining these things to him, telling him that he need not be worried or need not hesitate taking Mary to him as his wife and that he was, when the child was to be born, that he was to call his name Jesus for he would save his people from their sin. We also read in Matthew of the Magi, the wise men, Uh, from the east, who came later uh, to offer gifts to the newborn king. And those stories, those passages in Luke and and Matthew are the two records of the story of the birth of Jesus that we are most familiar with. But there is another one. There is another record of the birth of Jesus, and we're going to be looking at it in just a bit. But before we do... I want to take a few moments to consider what happened, what we are celebrating. Because whenever we think about uh, the birth of Christ, whenever we read about it or or talk about the birth of Jesus, we are actually discussing uh, a marvelous miracle. And we learn about Jesus and we see that what took place in what we sometimes just call the birth of Jesus, is is unique in all of time and in all of space. There is literally no one like Jesus Christ. And and I don't just mean that in in a way that, boy, there's no one like Jesus. But there is no other birth, there is no other person who is like Jesus. And that is seen, remember, in the fact that Jesus is both God and man with a divine nature and a human nature in one person. The divine nature. Jesus is that 
baby lying in the manger is 100% God. He is fully God. Our, our creeds tell us that he is very God of very God. Jesus, this baby, is eternal God, forever and perfectly at peace and enjoy existing as one of the three persons of the eternal Godhead. One in substance with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. One in substance, equal in power and glory. The second person of that trinity in unity, the one through whom all things, the scripture says, came into being and in whom all things continue to exist. He himself, ever and always, eternal and sovereign, holy God, blessed forever. Knowing all things, upholding all things, all glorious. The Apostle John says in his gospel that Jesus, or the Word as he uh, describes him, refers to him at the beginning of his gospel, uh, that all things, he says, were made by him. Everything that makes God, God, is true of this one. True of this baby lying in a manger. And at the same time, that Jesus has a divine nature, he also has a human nature. Jesus is 100% man. With all of the strengths and most notably the weaknesses of human flesh, of humanity, thirst and hunger, weariness. We sometimes make note of that um, Christmas song that says, Away in a manger, no crib for his bed, the little Lord Jesus lays down his sweet head. And it says that no crying he makes. That is bad theology. Because he was a real baby. He cried. He possessed a real human body, flesh and blood and bone from his mother. Who grew and learned and increased, he did, in wisdom and in stature. His human nature, at times demonstrating that it didn't know everything. A real body, a real soul. Just as his divine nature, uh, in that nature, everything that makes God God was included, so in his human nature, Everything that makes a human being a human being is included in the nature of Jesus Christ. He was made like us in all ways, except one. Everything except one thing. The one thing, in fact, that had it been included, would have disqualified Jesus from from doing the very thing that he came to do. And that one thing is sin. He had no sin. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, Peter says. He was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father at all times, in all ways, fully and completely. 
He did all that the law of God required. We talked earlier about how we can't keep the law of God. Well, Jesus could, and he did, without fail. So Jesus, that baby in the manger, 100% God, 100% man, unique and glorious. Now this morning, I want to focus as much of the church, of course, and even much of the world is giving at least some acknowledgement to, on the great event that was accomplished or that accomplished this coming together of the divine nature and the human nature in one person. The event by which the divine Son of God took to himself a human nature and thus became what theologians call the Theanthropos, the God-man, divine and human in one person. The day that the church has chosen to celebrate this we call Christmas. But the event that we celebrate is called the Incarnation. The term incarnation means for something, or in this case someone, that is not inherently flesh and blood to become flesh and blood. The Latin word carnis, from which we get incarnation, means flesh. So the incarnation is the enfleshment of God. And the incarnation of the Son of God is the pinnacle of God's revelation of himself that he had been giving to people throughout history. It is the the pinnacle of that as he reveals himself to fallen men when he not not only spoke about himself but revealed himself in his Son. And again, John tells us that it is Jesus, this living, eternal word who who has made known to mankind God. John 1.18 speaks of that. But why did this happen? What led to the first Christmas? What led to the enfleshment of God Almighty, the eternal second person of the Trinity? Jesus being born of a virgin, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that the child would be both a son of man and a son of God. Why is that so important? Well, to understand that, to understand the why of the incarnation, we have to sort of pause our consideration of the Christmas story and hit rewind and go back. Think of a, for those of you who are older, think of a videotape where you could rewind it. That's what we're doing, we're going to do. Because you have to. You have to go back before the angel came to Mary or to Joseph. You have to go back before the New Testament began to understand this. In fact, you have to go back before even the prophet Isaiah prophesied concerning the coming of a servant of the Lord, the one who would be wounded for our transgressions. Before he spoke of a child who would come, a son that would be given. Before he prophesied about one who would come who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. 
We have to go back even before the word of the Lord that came to King David and promised that there would come in his line a son who would reign on David's throne forever and ever with no end. We have to rewind back behind, before that, before the prophecy that Shiloh would come, before the covenants made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and even before the words that God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden right after the fall that the seed of the woman would come to set right all that had gone wrong in the fall. We have to go back before that. You say, well, what was before that? Was there anything before that? That's in Genesis 3. There's not much happening before that. Well, yes, there was before that. There was a whole eternity before that. And in that eternity, there was God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in that before time, God made an agreement among the three persons of the Trinity, an arrangement, a covenant, we call it. We don't usually talk too much about this, and there are many in the church that don't even know about this covenant. It wasn't made between God and man because there was no man yet. But this covenant was made among the members of the Trinity. Particularly, we focus on the fact that it was made between the Father and the Son, the first and the second persons of the Trinity. We call it the covenant of redemption because it had to do with redeeming mankind. God's plan for that took place before there was time. And in this covenant, in this sacred agreement that we learn of as we study the Scriptures, there were certain things that God the Father agreed to do, and there were certain things that God the Son agreed to do. God the Father promised certain things. God the Son promised certain things. Specifically, Jesus agreed to submit himself to serve as the redeemer of the people that God would choose to redeem out of the race of men and would give to him. Remember we talked about that in the past few weeks. Jesus would be sent by the Father. The Father would send the Son. And Jesus would come and he would actually redeem or purchase those people for God. He would do everything that was necessary so that God could accept these people as his own children and be in eternal fellowship with them. And again, John, the, the apostle and the gospel writer, throughout his gospel, and we've, we've seen some of this in the last few weeks as we looked at that passage in John, John makes many references to Jesus' own understanding of this, his self-consciousness of this, that he came to work and to do the things that he came to do, not in his own authority, not to do his own will, but he said, to do the will of him who sent me. And so, the second person of the Godhead in the eternal council of the triune God agreed and covenanted to come for the purpose of redeeming mankind. But such a coming would, would require more 
than God appearing as he had appeared to some of the figures in the Old Testament in, say, a burning bush as he appeared to Moses or a pillar of fire because this coming would require more than a a theophany, an appearance of God. It would require an incarnation. It would require a very specific type of coming because there were very specific requirements that needed to be met for this plan to come to fruition. And as we then begin to come back to fast forward, we first come to the opening chapters of Genesis where we read of the fall of mankind, our first parents choosing to follow their own wills instead of God's and thereby plunging the entire human race into sin and into guilt, listening to the voice of the serpent. But God in his grace did not leave mankind in that ruined state. But he gave them a promise. He gave to our first parents that promise to send one who will turn the ruined race back to God. One who will come, God says, who would crush the head of the serpent, who would destroy his work, who would undo that destruction done by the devil. It's as a result of that agreement that they had made in eternity. And this, we see, was not God having to think fast, to think on his feet, but just working in accordance with that plan. God's master plan. Because you see, this one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, that's already been established in the covenant of redemption. But if you notice, the covenant of redemption, I said, was made by the three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But if you notice in Genesis 3.15, this one who is going to come is not just God, not just the second person of the Trinity, but he is identified in Genesis 3.15 as the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. That is, the one who will redeem God's people, who will destroy the works of the devil, will be a human. Part of that fallen race. He'd have to be. Because the transgression, the fall, the sin, the rebellion was man's. The debt to God's justice was man's. So the payment of that debt had to come from man. In order that God would be just. So any redeemer for mankind would have to be himself a man, a flesh and blood human. But that comes with some difficulties as we consider it here in Genesis. A couple of them in particular. First is that the race of man is now thoroughly depraved. The race of man is now thoroughly sinful. There is none righteous, the Bible will say. Each one has turned to his own way. So there is no one who could redeem others when he himself is in need of redemption. And that's the case for everyone. So God needs not only a man to do this, but he needs a perfect man 
He needs a sinless man. Where is such a one to be found? Well, Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. Well, the second problem is that of the punishment for sin. God's perfect holiness, his perfect justice requires a perfect punishment for this rebellion. The punishment, the wages of sin, as Paul speaks of it, is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death, spiritual death. A never-ending pouring out of God's anger against the sinner. And such a harsh punishment, we hear of that, and it doesn't really compute with us, but it shows just how our minds don't grasp God's holiness and God's justice. But if a mere man were to try to suffer the the horrible, just, eternal anger of God in, in a short time, in something less than eternity... Well, recall what happened in the Old Testament when God's wrath, the Bible says, breaks out against humans. Think of Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament. Think of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. When that happens, they are killed instantly. Remember Isaiah. Isaiah just glimpsed the glory, the holiness of God in in God's temple, and he said, woe is me, I am undone. I am coming apart. So for someone to be able to withstand God's wrath and take that for someone else, he would have to be stronger than any man. So to be an appropriate redeemer, this one would have to be a member of the human race, would have to be a man. But to be a sufficient redeemer, he would have to be God. That's what's set in place in Genesis 3.15. And now we hit the fast-forward button, and we come back through all of this again. And we can take notice that that God, beginning there in Genesis 3.15, starts peppering the, the Old Testament, the record of the things that take place. He starts peppering his word with with hints and with shadows and with pointers and with pictures and with types and with shadows and promises that he intends to send such a redeemer. He intends to send such a one, an anointed and appointed one, a servant, a Messiah, a Christ come to bring grace and truth to the race of men. And so as we zip past on our way back to the New Testament and to our short Christmas story, we see again these covenants that God then begins to make with man. As God has spoken to the seed of the woman, uh, to Abraham now the promise comes that through his seed that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Job speaks of, of his assurance that even after his own death that he would see his Redeemer And that at the end, he would stand on the earth. The promises that we spoke of on the way back, we speak of on the way forward. The promises and the assurances to David that a son of his would rule God's kingdom, rule over God's people. In 2 Samuel, uh, we see that. Then David and others reflect on those promises in the book of Psalms. The promises of, of not just the coming of a Redeemer known now as the Messiah, but of his 
birth, his entering into our world. And as we come then to the writings of the prophets, we see the landscape become even more lush, even more thick with the details of God and his plan to fulfill his promise of him getting things ready in Daniel and in Micah and Hosea and Jeremiah and even Malachi. Especially, again, the words of Isaiah, the writings of Isaiah. He says things like this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In chapter 9, verse 6, we looked at this last week. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then as we continue to fast forward into the New Testament, finally, as Matthew and Luke record, an angel comes to Joseph, an angel comes to Mary, and announces the now eminent coming of this Messiah, of this Redeemer the one who will be the Son of God and the Son of Man. And then that brings us to the Bible's shortest Christmas story. We read a couple of chapters here, but this Christmas story is found in one chapter. In fact, it's found in one verse. In fact, it's found in half of one verse. And in fact... It's found in the first half of the first half of one verse. Four words. Four words that shine a spotlight on the glory and the importance of this event that some quaintly refer to as the birth of Jesus. It is that, but it's so much more than that. And it's not in Matthew And it's not in Luke. It's in John's Gospel. It's in the beginning of John's Gospel, in the first chapter, in the introduction of John's Gospel. It's in verse 14. And here is the Bible's shortest Christmas story. John writes, The Word became flesh. All of the promises, all that we've been talking about the last few minutes, All of the preparations, all of the pronouncements, all of the glory, all coalesce in these words. The Word became flesh. The Word is Jesus himself. The living Word, the living eternal self-expression. That's the idea behind the word that's translated word in John's Gospel. The self-expression, the revelation of God. He who, verse 1 of John's Gospel, says was in the beginning with God and the Word which was God. The one through whom, John says, all things were made. The one, in verses 4 and 5, that they say is light and life and he who came to shine in darkness. This God, this Word, this glory, this light, this revealer of God, this bringer of grace and truth, All of the glory and all of the majesty of the triune Godhead resides in this one. This is the word to which John refers. And that word, John says, became flesh. That's the Christmas story. 
That's the incarnation. The angel Gabriel spoke to Mary and said, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. He said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Your son, Mary, will be called the Son of God. The Word became flesh. The divine came among us as one of us. Now we have to be careful. We have to be careful there with that word became. Careful in how we, we understand how God became God and man. Because the eternal, glorious, immutable, unchangeable God did not transform into a man. That's an error. Sometimes we can get a little sloppy in our language and sloppy in our understanding. For God to become man would entail a change in the essence of God, who can't change. Also, when John says that the Word became flesh, he doesn't mean in any way that in order to become flesh, to become one of us, that he ceased being God. In any way, to any degree, because that too is impossible. It's impossible for God to change. You know, most of you here know, that there is an error that has enjoyed some popularity in the church since, well, just since the 19th century, and does so today, that says that when Christ took a human nature, that he emptied himself of part of his glory, part of his deity, that he laid it aside, that his divine nature became somewhat less divine. That is serious, serious error. It is inconsistent with what the Bible teaches. In fact, if we look at the rest of of this verse in John 1, we see that just as the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we say that in Him, we see that in Him, we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus did not lay aside any of his glory, any of his deity. His glory, rather, was veiled during his time dwelling among us. It was not removed. It was not lessened one little bit. Paul reminds us as he speaks or writes to the Colossians that in him, that is in Jesus Christ, the fullness of the deity dwells bodily in the God-man. That one verse right there alone in Colossians 2, 9, 9 is enough to put to rest this Christ-dishonoring doctrine of Jesus laying aside his deity. Just as Jesus' human nature, which came from his mother, Mary doesn't become divine, so the divine nature doesn't become human. But the two are together in the one person, the Word made flesh, the God-man, the Theanthropos, Jesus of Nazareth. Two natures, divine and human, remaining distinct but not separated. They, are, uh, they make one person, yet they are not mixed together. Neither is one changed into the other, and the two natures don't combine to make some new third nature. The Bible presents Christ as God and man together in Jesus Christ. And so he came. In this miracle of miracles, 
the creator of all things, stepping into his creation in order to redeem mankind, to reveal God to us, to bring light to a darkened world, to repair what had been broken and ruined by sin, doing all that is necessary that man might fulfill his purpose in being, which is, as our catechism says, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That man might recognize and reflect and enjoy the glory of God through a relationship with him. And God has done so in the only way that it could have been done, by coming, God and man in one person. And of course, the birth of Christ is just the beginning, isn't it? Stretching out before this baby in a manger, God incarnate, was a life of bringing glory to God in every aspect of his life and his death. As he rendered complete, perfect obedience to the will of God so that that righteousness could be credited to you, Christian, and be seen as yours, And as he was delivered up to die, the cursed death of a sinner, not any sin of his own, but on the cross he bore the sins of all who believe in him and rest in him. And that's the gospel. That whoever trusts in this one who has come will have eternal life through him. But it all began in eternity past. And it came to fruition in this event told in those four glorious words, the Word became flesh. And it is this event that the angels celebrated as they appeared to the the shepherds outside of the city. And even though the birth of Christ was of the humblest kind, it is as though the glory of the event could not be completely contained And so the angels, we read as they give this announcement to the shepherds that they are suddenly accompanied by the glory of God and a host of heaven that scared these poor shepherds to death as they sang glory to God in the highest. Why? Why was it such a great event? Why was it so magnificent? Because unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And today the church sings, what child is this? It is Christ, Christ the King. Today the church sings, joy to the world, the Lord is come. To that let us rejoice And to that, let us say, amen. Father, we thank you that in your infinite wisdom, because of the great love with which you loved us, when you set your love on us and gave us to your Son even before the world was created, we thank you that it was set in place that the word would become flesh and dwell among us. 
that he would come, that he would live, that he would die, that he would be raised again, that he would be ascended into heaven, that we might be saved, that we might be called the children of God. Lord, help us to rejoice in the glory and the, the miracle of the incarnation. Help us to understand something of exactly what it is we celebrate today and that we celebrate always as often as we think of the fact that Christ has come. And we pray these things all in his name. Amen.